You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. All right, we're going to start in Hebrews. There's going to be two sections we're going to be reading, uh, Hebrews 5, 1 through 10, and then I'm going to jump to Hebrews 7, 1 through 10. So if you have your Bibles, you can open it up. Otherwise, I'm sure it's on the screen behind me. I'll start at verse 1 and 5. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. By designated being designated by God as a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Jumping to chapter 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave the tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi's who receive the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. This is the reading of the Lord. Praise be to God. All right, we're going to dismiss our Redemption Hill kids, ages 2 through 4 and grades 4 through 5. So if you guys are going to be heading out... Have fun in your classes. You may be seated. Thanks for, uh, if you're able, um, 
and willing, standing for the reading of God's Word. There was a lot there today. 20 verses, 20 whole verses. Talk about kicking it into high gear. Um, As you can tell, we're still in the book of Hebrews. It's a home, hopefully a comfortable home, home for you. I do hope that our time in the book of Hebrews has helped you to know really the glories of Jesus Christ as we've seen how the New Testament is deeply connected with the Old Testament, Old Testament events, Old Testament promises, Old Testament people. Well, I have more for you uh, today. <laughs> Before getting into it, um, I'm going to tell you about a few byproducts of, of why it's been beneficial, I think, of going through the Hebrews the way that we have been doing it. One, by preaching slowly through the Bible, I hope I'm helping you read the Bible. I know I've made that statement in the past, but I think that's one of the byproducts of preaching. Is that I, by the way that I preach, I hopefully equip you to read the Word of God. And so I hope that by going slowly through the Bible and looking at the Old Testament and showing you how it's directly related to the New Testament, your personal Bible reading is enhanced, right? And again, we're going to get more of that today. And I'm actually kind of excited because this is, a, in my view, a fun passage to preach. Another byproduct of this sermon series to help you see the relevance of the Old Testament. I have known too many pastors, Christians, and churches that disregard the Old Testament because they do, th- they do not think it is relevant. And with all due respect, that is a terrible perspective. Terrible. That is a dangerous perspective, frankly. In the second century, there was this guy named Marcion. And this is kind of my wheelhouse because I love early church history. And this guy, he had a lot of um, heresies that he held to, and he was condemned in the early church. But one of the things that he held to is like, the, the God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New Testament. <laughs> he was, he was you know, condemned, and rightfully so. Uh, there is no need to unhitch from the Old Testament, Old Testament, but we have every reason to turn over every stone throughout the Old and New Testaments. And again, I hope you're seeing that as we go through Hebrews. And we've been living in the Old Testament, it seems. A third byproduct of going through Hebrews is seeing how the New Testament authors interpret the Old Testament. And that's important. It's not enough to read the Old Testament. We're seeing how the author of Hebrews is actually interpreting the Old Testament, right? And I I think that is of tremendous value as well. In other words, I hope that Hebrews is helping you to read the Old Testament Rightly, rightly. Two more comments before I pray and preach. Once again, I plan to cruise through this section on Melchizedek, but I may revisit this section of Scripture next week. (laughs) You guys are kind of used to that by now, I'm I'm hoping. (laughs) Common common theme. I asked Sharice Friday, uh, how much did you learn about Melchizedek growing up? And she's like, I never heard of a sermon on this guy. I mean, you know it's there because you read your Bible and he shows up. She's like, "I, I never heard a sermon. And if you like her, this sermon and perhaps another sermon or two will be a welcome introduction to a figure in the Bible that a lot of people just don't know what to do with. Like, what do we do with this guy? We read about him, but we don't know what to do. Last comment. You need to think of Hebrews 5 and 7 and this sermon 
as a piece of stained glass window that makes a picture. I grew up in the Catholic Church, as many of you know, and the, and the church that I grew up, grew up going to had like 20 to 30 stained glass windows that were separate from one another, and each stained glass window had a picture. Could have been a biblical event, could have been a Catholic saint, whatever. Well, if you take just one piece of the stained glass, you have no idea what you're looking at. But if you back up and you see all the pieces together, you see the picture as it should be. And so one of my goals this morning as we look at this particular passage is to have you back up and see how each piece fits together to show you a beautiful picture. And I think I'm going to, in light of that, I think I'm going to head into a direction that you might not expect me to go into. Because I'm asking the question, okay, if I step back, what do I see? What, what am I seeing here? So that's kind of an expectation for this morning, for this message. So let me pray, and then I'm going to ask, God's, ask for God's help as we deal with this passage head on. Heavenly Father, indeed, we praise you because all blessings flow from you. And we thank you, O oh God, that you give us passages like Hebrews 5, 1 to 10, and Hebrews 7, 1 to 10 to wrestle with. And I pray that the result of this message would be for us to see how good you are to us. Lord, help me to be faithful to what you've already said and what you continue to say. Be with my friends that are in front of me this morning. In the power of the Spirit, minister to their hearts. I pray this in the only name we can pray. In Jesus' name, amen. For several years during seminary, uh, Shreese and I lived in the southeast of the United States, um, North Carolina. And I have to say that the south is not the Midwest <laughs> at all. It was in the south where I, where I first heard the phrase, bless your heart. <laughs> and now I, I, initially I couldn't tell if I was being insulted or if someone was like saying something endearing, right? It's like, it's like context matters here. <laughs> I mean, who knows what they're saying. But here in the Midwest, we like to bless others as well. We want to bless our meals, right? Appropriate, we bless our meals at the Powers House. If you sneeze, this is so funny. If you sneeze, guess what? <laughs> You're blessed. <laughs> we got this joke in our, in our house that, you only get two blessings from dad. If you sneeze, I say, God bless you. If you sneeze again, if you sneeze a third time, no more blessings. <laughs> How long are we going to do this? You know? Here's my point. Christians use the word blessing, and I will not question the sincerity of a person using the word. We use it all the time. But I wonder, because the word is a part of our modern-day parlance, I, w I wonder if we've lost focus about what it means for God to bless. I wonder if we've lost the understanding of the depths of God blessing people. I wonder if we see the magnitude of blessing from God's perspective. There's a massive difference between Sean Powers saying, bless your heart. And God's saying, I am going to bless you so that you can be a blessing to others. 
you or I saying, bless your heart, or God bless you, has nothing to do with the mandate from God for the church to bless the nations. Again, I'm not questioning the sincerity when people use that language at all, you know, but I want you to see the difference. What is Melchizedek's role then in God blessing a nation that will bless other nations? Let me show you. After, after several weeks of living in Hebrews 6, I will finally introduce to you to our, our international man of mystery. Melchizedek's role in the Bible is undervalued because, like I said earlier, we don't know what to do with him. <laughs> we read in Hebrews 7, he is without father or mother or genealogy. Now, if you just stop right there, you're just thinking to yourself, I only know of one other person. I mean, Adam and Eve, perhaps, right? They're created by God. But Jesus, right? That's where our head's going. Having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Well, Adam and Eve had beginning of days and end of life, so it's, you can kind of push them out of the way. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So he is kind of like the Son of God, but he's not the Son of God? I got it? No? None of this seems to make sense. Here are several theories about the origins of Melchizedek. Some say Melchizedek is the manifestation of Jesus in the Old Testament. In theological terms, we call this a theophany. It was literally Jesus in the Old Testament. I struggle with this theory because what does it mean for Jesus to take on flesh in his incarnation, right? If he was already in the flesh prior. I struggle with this. Is Melchizedek just Jesus in spiritual form? Okay, maybe. I don't know. Others suggest that Melchizedek is in the line of Shem, the only son Noah blessed before he died. I've heard that one. And if you're a Jew, that one can make some sense because you're not reading the book of Hebrews. The idea has been presented that Melchizedek was an angel. He appeared on the scene at the right time to bless Abraham, and I'll show you that here in a moment. Okay. Last, it is possible that Melchizedek was a dude who lived during the time of Abraham. He's, he's an important dude, but a regular guy nonetheless. Here's my opinion. I don't know. <laughs> and I'm very comfortable with living with the mystery. Don't get me wrong. I like to intellectually think about these things, but I'm also very comfortable with the mystery. I do not need to explain the exact origins of Melchizedek because his origins are not significant to what God is actually communicating. Again, fun intellectual exercise. We can talk about it later, but if we get stuck there, we actually miss why he is so important. At the very least, a description of Melchizedek in Hebrews 5 and 7 suggests he is categorically different than Moses, David, and Abraham. I still don't know what to do with it. It's like we know a lot about Melchizedek and nothing about him at all, all at the same time. Like I said, our man of mystery. So, I do want to answer the question, what can we know about Melchizedek, and why does he take so much space in the book of Hebrews, right? What, what can we know, and why is he here? 
If we're going to answer these questions, we need to follow the flow of thought of the author of Hebrews by going back once again, like I said, to the Old Testament. Here's what we're going to find out. Surrounding the story of this man named Melchizedek is a more incredible story of God blessing specific, specific people so that they can be a blessing to an entire world. I can make an argument that the inclusion of Melchizedek in the book of Hebrews is the greatest compliment of saying Jesus is greater. And I know that might be a stretch for some people because we've seen how Jesus is greater than the angels. We've seen how Jesus is greater than Moses, the great Moses. He gave the Ten Commandments. However, there is something unique about Melchizedek. Take a look at Hebrews 7 verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. Before we go any further, you should be asking the question, what is he referring to? What is being referred to here in Hebrews 7.1? Abraham, it says, is blessed after he came back from slaughtering kings. Like, what? That's usually, is that how blessings work? And what does Melchizedek have to do with Abraham? Why does Abraham need to be blessed by some priest king who drops into the story kind of out of nowhere? For the answer, we need to spend time in the book of Genesis. And this is where it gets really fun. This is fascinating to me. One of the most critical passages in the Bible is Genesis 12 verses 1 to 3. Like if you're going to put like a top 10 list of most important passages in the Bible, it's actually right here. Here's what we read. I actually read it last week. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I mean, if you just do a quick word study, I'm sure you're seeing a particular theme here. Verse 3, and I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So the word bless, or some type of form of bless, shows up five times right here. It actually, if you know the book of Genesis, Genesis 12 is a, is, a, is a massive division between Genesis 1, 1 through 11 and 12 and the rest of Genesis. So there's something going on here that's really significant. There was a time when humanity experienced the blessing of God back in the Garden of Eden. Because of sin and disobedience, God had to curse man and woman. But the curse also came with a promise, see last week's sermon, that God would provide a way for, for humanity once again to receive the blessing of God. In God's divine wisdom, he chose to bless a pagan man and his offspring. That's what he was when Abraham, Abram at the time, first encountered God. God will bless those who bless Abraham and his offspring. Conversely, God will curse those who curse Abraham and his family tree. I want to suggest to you that this theme of blessing and cursing by God is seen throughout human history and is in the mind of the author of Hebrews when he pens Hebrews 5 and Hebrews 7. 
Now, I won't get into what it means for God to curse others. That is a conversation for another day. I'll only say that a curse from God means living with the consequences of trying to create your own blessing. That's what Abraham did. Abraham and Sarah did. They tried to bless themselves by having Hagar sleep with Abraham, their servant. And they brought cursing upon themselves. That's one way to bring about a curse upon your life. Or attempting to curse the people of God. For today, I will show you what it means for God to bless. And this is where Melchizedek fits into our story. In Genesis 14, we see that Melchizedek plays a unique role in seeing Abraham and his offspring blessed. Here's the lead up to Genesis 14, which is referenced in Hebrews 7.1. So if you're thinking to yourself, okay, what does Hebrews 7.1 have to do with anything? It's Hebrews 14. A lot happens between Hebrews, or excuse me, Genesis 12 and Genesis 14 where we read about our man of mystery. Here's what's going on. A bunch of kings from the east teamed up and went to war with a bunch of kings who were living in Canaan. Right? There's, a, there's basically a war going on. Now what's Abraham up to at this time? Abraham is living in the hills like a West Virginian hillbilly. A very rich West Virginian hillbilly. He is attempting to avoid the conflict. He avoids the battle until his nephew Lot is taken by one of the armies from the east. By the way, this is an example of another kingdom or nation uh, cursing the people of God. When Lot is taken hostage, Abraham turns into a commander of a SEALs Team 6 unit. That's the first part of Hebrews 14. He recruits 318 of his best men, divides them up during the night, takes out the armies from the east, and rescues his nephew Lot. Now, that was the first half of Genesis 14. Now, let's go to the second half of Genesis 14. I have it on the screen for you. After his return, that is after Abraham's return, from the defeat of Chedorlaomer. And the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, went out to meet him at the valley of Shebeh. That is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the high, he was the priest of God most high. Verse 19. And he said to him, he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Note, Melchizedek is saying, I know God has done all this for you. God delivered your enemies into your hands. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Not like a tenth of his paycheck. A tenth of everything. It's a lot. Abraham acquired much over the years. Verse 21, And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap of anything that is yours. Least you should say, king of Sodom, right? I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young man have eaten. Basically, he's saying, we're not taking anything but what these guys have already eaten, right? You're not going to get that back. And the share of the men who went with, him, with me, let Aner, Eshkol, and Mari take their share. Why did I take you here? Well, because we have several clues about Melchizedek. Clue number one. 
Melchizedek is the king of Salem. This is fascinating right here. Salem would become Jerusalem. Salem also means peace. Clue number two. Melchizedek is contrasted with the king of Sodom. You notice that? The king of Sodom approaches Abraham and says, I want some of the people that were taken in battle. Melchizedek does not ask for anything from from Abraham, but actually gives bread and wine. It's like, you were just in battle. You're hungry. I know that. Here you go. What is suggested in the Hebrew language is that more than bread was given to Abram and his men. Melchizedek offered an entire feast. So it says bread and wine here in the English, but actually what's going on, it's bring out everything. Give it to the boys. Get get everything. An entire feast. So the Hebrew word actually more accurately captures the generosity of Melchizedek. So clue number two, with the king of Sodom as the point of contrast, is that Melchizedek is generous. One person's a taker, the other one's a giver. And if you track the king of Sodom throughout the book of Genesis, you see where that's headed. Clue number three, Melchizedek is a priest of God. It is clear that Melchizedek served Yahweh amid the Canaanites. He's serving Yahweh in the midst of a bunch of pagans. Abram acknowledged the unique stature of Melchizedek and gives him 10%, like I said, of everything that he owns. Melchizedek doesn't ask for anything, but Abram knows what is the right thing to do here. He says, this belongs to you. Clue number four. Because of the stature of Melchizedek, Abram receives a blessing from him. This is what we read in Hebrews 7, 7. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. So Melchizedek is superior to Abram. I mean, when you think about the role of Abram and Abraham throughout the Bible and the whole Bible corpus, that's actually a stunning statement. Melchizedek is superior to him. And here's Melchizedek's blessing over Abram. Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. As I've said, that while there is a mystery surrounding the origins of Melchizedek, we do see the unique role of Melchizedek. I have one more data point to show you before I jump back into Hebrews. Again, I'm presenting to you the, the pieces of the stained glass. After Genesis 14, Melchizedek falls off the map. Off the map. Between the time Genesis and Hebrews was written, the name Melchizedek only showed up once. Only shows up once. And if you've been following along in the book of Hebrews, you know where it shows up. Psalm 110. Like when I sit here and I think about how the Bible is, how it fits so neatly together. This is just another example how amazing God the Holy Spirit carried men along to write a beautiful story of God's redemption and blessing as it pertains to today. This is another great example. Psalm 110 shows up repeatedly in the book of Hebrews. It is referenced 14 times in Hebrews. For example, we see Psalm 110 in Hebrews 5, 6, which Rob read, and in in chapter 7, verse 17, which we'll get to next week. 
The author of Hebrews pulled out the megaphone and he's he's using the megaphone with his left hand. He's got his Bible in his right hand and he's saying, look here, look here at Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is what we call a messianic psalm, meaning it speaks about Jesus Christ, a future Messiah who will come through the priestly line of Melchizedek. We read in Psalm 110, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Speaking of Christ, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In light of everything we've seen in Genesis and Psalm 10, allow me to reset the scene. Allow me to to take all the pieces for you and put it together so we can see the entire picture, right? God blesses Abraham, and everyone a part of Abraham's family tree will be blessed and will bless others. Genesis 12. Abraham encounters the priest king of Salem named Melchizedek. That's Genesis 14. His priestly order predates the Aaronic and Levitical priesthood, right? Moses is not on the scene yet. There's no law. There's no no priest formally. But this priesthood predates those, which makes it more excellent, which is the point of Hebrews 7, verses 4 to 6. David in Psalm 110 prophesies about a future Messiah who will be a priest king after the order of Melchizedek. And now the book of Hebrews says the greatest priest king, after the order of Melchizedek, has provided the ultimate source of blessing to God's people and to the the entire world. It is through the gospel of Jesus Christ that blessing is extended. As a result, the people of God are blessed by God through Christ. And it is through the people of God, the church, even this local church, that God continues to bless the nations. Which leads me to this thought that's not in my notes, which means I don't know where I'm going. You and me and Redemption Hill Church are a part of this story. Like we can, we can go back to Genesis 12, Genesis 14, Psalm 110, Hebrews 5, Hebrews 7, and think to ourselves, I'm a part of that story. So where do we go from here? I will circle back to the relationship between Melchizedek and Jesus in a moment, but I think we need to look at the nature of blessing. If that's the whole point, what is the nature of God to, uh, a blessing? What does it mean for God to bless? When God blesses someone, they receive divine kindness, mercy, and goodness. The kindness, mercy, and goodness of God are, are like spiritual attributes that, that could take on tangible form. For example, Abram was a recipient of substantial abundance during his life. However, and this guards us against the prosperity gospel, the divine blessing of God does not necessarily take on material form. Something material might result from being blessed, but it's not the source of blessing. Uh, The Beatitudes of Matthew 5 are an excellent example of God's spiritual blessing. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, etc. We we read in Luke 11, 28, Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. And we read in James 1, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. So allow me to sum up what it means to be blessed by God. Being blessed by God means receiving favor perhaps in the form of his goodness and mercy and grace and love, receiving favor from God 
and continuing to exist in his favor in a genuine sense. My children are blessed by me. As their father, I have extended favor to them. Under my care and protection, they make choices that enhance and highlight my favor, or they make choices that cultivate frustration for themselves, right? I mean, there might be, Lord willing, there'll be a day when one of my daughters and a future son-in-law ask me to bless their marriage, to, to extend my favor over their marriage. The same with God. God extends blessings to his sons and daughters. Under God's blessing, the people of God have an opportunity to flourish as they follow God's commands and live in a spirit of biblical wisdom. Let me say that again. Under God's blessing, the people of God have the opportunity to flourish. You want to flourish? That means you have been blessed by God. And you follow his commands and you live in biblical wisdom. Now, I, need, I probably need to correct a misconception about what it means to be blessed by God. What happens if you lose your job? Do you cease to be blessed by God? What happens? Um, what do you make of, of God's blessing if your spouse dies? Do you cease to be blessed by God? Will you continue to say you're blessed by God? Here's how we need to understand the nature of God's blessing. If you've been given the gift of faith to believe the gospel, guess what? You're blessed. If God the Holy Spirit resides in you, you are blessed. If you have a divine hope that Jesus will return to restore and reconcile all things, you are blessed. I am not attempting to dislodge spiritual blessings from material blessings that come from God, but we need to keep them in the correct order. A materially poor man can still have all the riches of the entire world. I, uh, I'm accustomed to saying when I interact with strangers, when they ask you how you're doing, right? I say, I'm better than I deserve. I am better than I deserve because of all that God has given me through Christ. Here's a taste of what it means to be blessed by God. Ryan already went there, and in God's providence, this, is, this particular passage was on my mind. It's Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless in love. He predestined us, you hear that? In love, he predestined us for adoption. That's why you're called a son or daughter because you've been adopted by God. Adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. You can think of Ephesians 1 as the culmination of what God said to Abraham in Genesis 12 and what Melchizedek prayed over Abraham in Genesis 14. Ephesians 1 is the culmination of the blessing of God because Jesus trusted in God's blessing. 
Here's the reason why you are blessed, Christian. Here's why Ephesians 1 applies to your life. We go now back to Hebrews 5. In the days of the flesh, Jesus, meaning when, when Jesus was alive, right? Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. Now we're thinking crucifixion. To him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, which is a very powerful statement. Learning obedience through suffering. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. And here's this tie into Melchizedek again, guys. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So, from this passage, we see that Ephesians 1 applies to the people of God. At the cross, Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice and the great high priest. We saw a lot of this in Hebrews 6. And falling from the cross of Jesus Christ comes abundant blessings. Ultimate blessing from God comes to you through the cross. Jesus blessed the offspring of Abraham in a way that Melchizedek could never do. He blesses his people through suffering and death and then resurrection. Jesus is greater than Melchizedek because of these facts. And I have more good news. Like if you're sitting here and you're like, yes, I know I've been blessed by God. And you have a heart of gratitude, which I hope you do. I have more good news. It's so like God. You'd be like, I got more. I have more for you. If you are a Christian, the effects of being blessed by God are not over. There will be a day when you will see the risen Savior face to face. Man, that will be a blessing. You'll be back in the garden city called the New Jerusalem. Now you should pause there and think to yourself, wasn't Melchizedek called the king of Salem, which would become Jerusalem? There will be a day when there is no more sin, no more death, no more pain. There will be a day when you will experience and know maximum blessing from God. I can't wait for that day. I know many of you can't wait either. But that day has not arrived. Because Christians have been and will be blessed by God, we have every reason to be optimistic about what God is doing in the present. Further, Christians must be motivated to share with others what it means to be blessed by God. We should have that motivation. Like, let me just tell you why. Let me tell you. Yeah, I got into an accident. Yeah, I understand. I'm still blessed. Yeah, I lost my job. I understand. Bad day. I'm still blessed. I'm still blessed. We have every reason to be motivated to share with others why. Consider this point. When Jesus says in Matthew 28, uh, what he says in Matthew 28 is a direct application of what God says to Abraham in Genesis 12. Go therefore and make disciples, right? Make disciples so they may experience the blessing of God. Go make disciples and baptize them and teach them, teach them God's commands. And what do we see? Who are Christians supposed to reach? The nations. The nations. I mean, this church exists to reach the nations. We can't physically transplant ourselves into a place like Afghanistan or Iran. 
but we look around us and we see who, who's right in front of us. How can I share the blessing of God to them? Look at the people right in front of you. You bless the nations by discipling the people who are in your direct spheres. I mean, this happens in families, right? I want my children to understand the blessing of God. And so I disciple them in such a way where they see that and they hear that and they know that. Our local community, right? I want our local community to know the blessing of God. So that takes speaking to people in our local community. That means taking on the likeness of Christ in our local community at your job where you work, right? Even even that person at work who's hard to be around, especially that person, they need to see the blessing of God in your life by what you say and what you do. The greatest blessing we bring is not the trite phrase that we say when someone sneezes, although I'll keep saying it. (laughs) We come with the most significant message the world has ever known. It is a message that changes people and communities. It is a message that makes dead people alive. Now, go bless someone today. Let's pray. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.